Harvest Seymour podcast. Come check us out and see how God is moving in this community. If you would like to know more, check out our Facebook page or you can visit us at hcfseymour.org. Have a wonderful day. Man, it's so good to see each and every one of you today. We're going to have an action-packed day. Amen? But before I get there, just a couple of things. First of all, I want to express gratitude to everyone. If you remember back in February when we had the chili cook-off and, uh, and cake auction fundraiser, well, that, that fundraiser helped facilitate our youth conference that we just had this past week. And so thank you all for contributing to that. Uh, man, that youth conference was amazing. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, when life gives you lemons, you got to make lemonade. Our youth uh, camp was canceled, but we had a phenomenal time putting on our own youth conference. And, and I tell you, the, I think the, the real joy for me in that was the simple fact of getting to experience a lot of the things uh, that happen in camp uh, with our kids got to happen here in our town. And so uh, you didn't have to go off anywhere. Amen. Now we got to enjoy the goodness of God and his kingdom right here. Amen. And so I also wanted to mention that this will be, as far as I know, the last time we're going to ask people to wear masks. Everybody will be free from this point forward. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, uh, and so in light of that, I put together a, uh, my own version of top 10 list benefits of wearing a mask. Would you all like to hear that? It is super corny, but this is who I am, Okay. Number one reason or benefit uh, for wearing a mask, no fear of bad breath. That's a good reason. Number two, discover your bad breath, right? Which is closely related to number three, your friends discover their bad breath. Because, you know, sometimes you want to tell them and you just go like, mm, that mask was a gift. They can discover what, just, what they're doing to people, you know. Number four, you can survive in a gas station bathroom. <laughs> That's number four. Number five is uh, no pressure to smile at people when you're just not in the mood, you know, because no one can tell the difference. Now, the, the, number six is a little sketchy. But if everyone wears a mask, passing gas is not a big deal. <laughs> Or is it? But number seven is it hides zits, pimples, and fever blisters. All right, that's, that's good. And number eight is no fear of lettuce or pepper in your teeth. You know, you don't worry about that. Number nine, save money on breath mints. Okay. And then finally, number 10, uh, your liberal friends will leave you alone. So, <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that one. Anyways, anyways, sorry. Uh, that was for, really, that was for me. Um, but anyways, but um, so we've been in a series uh, on healthy church. And, um, and, and so uh, and you can listen to previous messages just by going on, online and looking back. Um, but I, I, I will say that the driving force in this series has been love. That, that as, as Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Amen? 
And so today's word is going to be a little different in this way. The element of this word today that is really designed to engage us intellectually as well as spiritually. Sometimes in our Christian faith and in the world in which we live, sometimes Christians are judged as being not judged as being not very intellectually serious. And so uh, this morning, some of some of this will come from some of the research that I've done over the over my sabbatical time, as well as some things that I learned from a, a Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, a lot of his writings and teachings. And, and so I want to give him credit with with some of the things that um, I'm going to be sharing today. And so and, and here here's why I believe that it's more important now than ever that Christians get established even intellectually in their faith, okay? That we know the truth of which we believe. Does that make sense? Because the world is trying to redefine the way that we should think. It's trying to actually even redefine the church. Whenever you have political leaders saying such things, well, churches need to change the way they think. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, we've, we've got some... We have issues that we need to make sure that we're grounded in. Amen? Amen. And so, so we began this series saying, or I shared this last week, that love is the supreme ethic in the kingdom of God. So if you could think of it in this way, like love, kingdom healthy love is like this umbrella that if you want to understand uh, the kingdom of God, you have to first start with love. And then the natural question that people throw right back in your face is, is that if, well, if God is so loving, then why all the evil in the world? Okay, well, in order for love to truly be love, underneath this great umbrella, there must exist this element of free choice. So in order for love to be love, you have you have to have the element of free choice, meaning this, you are free to choose love or you're free to resist that love. I mean, we all know that God is not after robots, is he? He's after people who from the heart would choose him. Amen? And so in order for love to be love, there has to be free will and free will must exist. You're free to love or you're free to resist that love. And in that resisting of that love, that's where evil gives birth. In the resistance, in the re rebellion of that love, that's where evil is birthed. How many of you know that love is so misunderstood today? How many of you know that there's so much pressure today to compromise values and truths regarding love in order to be better loving? But what, but what is this deal of com the compromising of truth in order to be loving? If you have to compromise truth in order to be loving, is not your love based on a lie? Can we be serious thinkers today? And so the title of today's message is Love and Truth. Love and Truth. 
You can turn in your Bibles to John 4. That's where I'll be primarily, but I'm going to jump off from John 18. It's the conversation between Jesus and Pilate right before his crucifixion. Verse 37 of John 18 says this, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's pray. Father, this morning, that even today, Lord, as you root us and ground us in your love, may all the more, God, we be grounded in truth. Father, that we may may be able to see as you see and to hear what you say. Father, bring our vision into alignment with yours. Cause us to see this world, this life, this day the way that you do. Father, may we, the church, that sleeping giant, awake today. Awake to truth today. Father, today, even as as we leave this place, Lord, may we be all the more sure in the fact that, Jesus, you love us, that you reign, that you're seated high, that you have a plan, and that you're working in an unprecedented way in our day. May we be totally convinced of you, God. Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this week, I was, um, was walking through the living room and I just caught the tail end of, of Ruby watching something on Disney Plus, a National Geographic thing. And, and in this National Geographic uh, television program, it was talking about how, you know, the dinosaurs were extinct and, and how we know for a fact that today where a meteor landed on the earth and vaporized all the dinosaurs and caused tsunamis and all, all of this stuff in the earth. And, and, um, and, uh, and, she, and so kind of in a little bit of a panic, she goes, Dad, is this right? Is this true? Is, is what they're saying, is this, is this the way it all happened? How many of you as parents have ever had to deal with something like that? How many of you as parents, you go like, mm, let's change the subject, you know? <laughs> you know? You know, sometimes we feel ill-equipped for, at times, the, the questions that our kids have. And what, in, and, what, and what happens today is that if we are not answering those questions, then the world will. You see... Being able to give a defense for your faith, to be an apologist, apologia, means that you would answer the questions. And see, we today as believers have a responsibility to answer the questions that our kids propose to us. Y'all want to hear what I told her? I told her, honey, they are presenting their ideas as the gospel truth. And I want you to recognize this, honey. See, they play all of this dramatic music, have all of these graphics and all of these things going on in order to elicit an emotion out of you 
to convince you to come to 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 believe the gospel they're preaching. You're being manipulated right now. And I said from the beginning, the scientists have disagreed. They have said this. They have said that. And every time they present their argument, they present we now know. Okay, honey, I'm going to tell you, they don't. They've disagreed for forever. But here's the narrative I want you to hear from the scripture. In the beginning, God. It doesn't say exactly how it all happened, but you need to know in the beginning, God. I said the way this thing began is unclear. The way this thing is going to end is unclear. But what you can be convinced of for a fact is that 2,000 years ago, God, come born, born of a virgin, became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus Christ appeared in this earth, and he died a sinner's death on the cross so that he would cause us all to be reconciled back to God who would ever call him Lord. I said, you can bank on that, honey. Jesus is Lord. She's like, okay. And then so she says, okay, great. <laughs> you know. But you see, what happens is, is that that's the way a lot of culture hooks you. They present their message, play a little music, tell you a sad story, and reel you in. How many of you like these like, talent shows? You like America's Got Talent and all of these. Y'all ever watch that stuff? Okay. How many of you have ever seen the situation where someone is living an unbiblical life and they'll get up and start sh talking about how they've been judged their whole life and how Christianity is so mean and hateful, they'll play this sad music and then they'll say something to the effect, yeah, the world judges you, but we won't. The church judges you, but we won't. That's the same bill of goods. I, I, the only reason I bring this up is so that you realize that you get manipulated. Amen? So let me help you with this. Amen? The world is just like Pilate asking what is truth. And people with an agenda supply the answer. People need a place to build their life. You can build your life on Jesus Christ. And on his word, a healthy church must be established in truth. So experts say that we live in what's called a post-truth culture. Post-truth culture. And this is what a post-truth culture means. Is that my feelings and opinions are elevated above truth. So if you don't agree with my feelings or my opinions, now this is the scary part. If you don't agree with my feelings or opinions, my quest becomes to gain power. And then if I can gain power, then I can overrule you. If I can get enough people to believe what I believe and agree with my feelings and opinions, then my, my reality, my truth trumps yours. Anybody say, oh, my goodness? So I pray to whether or not I should be as direct as I'm about to be, but I'm, I feel like I feel the Lord is cool with me doing it, and if I need to ask forgiveness, I will later. Amen? But the, the Marxist group Black Lives Matter is a perfect example of this. And their violent protests. In many ways, it reminds me of Absalom. 
If you remember when Absalom, he stood outside of the city gates. And, he, and all of the people who were offended with the king, he went to them and said, if I were king, I would deal with all of this. But did you know that he never dealt with any of it? He was only manipulating them to fulfill his own agenda, which was to take power. And so for that Marxist group today, it's not about truth. It's about power. Amen? See, Marxism actually has its roots in atheism. Karl Marx was an atheist. And so today when we start talking about worldviews, there are worldviews in opposition one to another. Folks, the most biblical thing, most patriotic American thing you could ever do today is preach the gospel. To return to our root system. So how did we get here? How did did we get to a post-truth culture to where it's my feelings and my opinion presides over truth? How did we get here? Bear with me, okay? In the 16 to 1700s, we had what was called rationalism, that it was, it was the worldview of the day. Rationalism, the 1600s to the 1700s, which was all about logic and rational thought. How many of you are a fan of rational thought? It seems to escape us a little bit nowadays, but it, w- but it was based in logic, okay? However, there was a little bit of a rejection of supernatural uh, realities and truth, but that's whenever that become the overwhelming concept. Then following that, in the 1700s, 1800s, was what's called empiricism. which means uh, what is measured is real. And so that's where, um, you know, theories like uh, uh, Darwinism and and evolution really began to take shape. You know, by the way, uh, kids, just let me just tell you that Darwinism Charles Darwin, who discovered that theory, actually renounced his theory on his deathbed and asked for a minister. Just saying. <laughs> okay, so he, but here's the thing. They were saying, so that's where science and naturalism, all of these things became really important. But how many of you also understand, that's, that's a really a, a reality that we need today. We need to measure things. We need to, you see what I'm saying? There, is, there are slivers of truth in this. You know what I mean? Okay, so so what's real is what's measured, but then it, by the early uh, by the time we got into the 1900s and especially the 1960s, this next thought came about, which was called existentialism. And in existentialism, what it said was, "Hey, I, there's more to me than what can be measured. 
He said, what about my, like, my human consciousness? I have thoughts. I have feelings. How do you measure feelings, you know? And so in existentialism, what the, over, the way that this can be understood, I am what I do. I am what I feel. Now there is slivers of truth in that. Because if, if you act stupid, you just might be, right? But, but, here, but, here's the, but here's the thing. I had this, during the youth conference, I was able to talk about, uh, I did the purity talk. And, I, and, I said, and so this is how I, I started it. It's like, it's like this, you got to answer this question, who, I, who am I and where am I going? And so I, 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 for, I gave them all these areas to, to determine their identity. Who are you at school? Who are you at work? Who are you in your future job? Who are you in family? So I gave them all of these things. And so, so they started answering these questions like, who am I in, in my future job? Well, I want to be an engineer. Well, at school, I'm, I'm going to be a, a, a superstar, you know. And so we started going through this. And I said, but what, here's the problem with all of these. What happens on the day you get fired as an engineer? Who are you then? What happens on the day when you're uncool at school? Your identity is much deeper than what you do. Your identity forever is a child of God. I don't care if a volcano erupts and this city is covered in liquid hot lava. You are still a child of God. And nothing can take that away from you. So if you want to determine who you are today, it's not really about what you do. It's about whose you are. Amen? And so then from about the uh, mid-1900s to 2000s was postmodernism. How many of you have heard of postmodernism before? And it can be understood in three ways. No truth. No meaning and no certainty. No truth, no meaning, and no certainty. Of course, this lays the the groundwork for relativism. I'm the definer of my own truth. So you hear phrases like, live your own truth, you know, in which there are no absolutes. Now, postmodernism didn't hold nearly as long as these previous ones is because, because it's so easy to debunk. So you say things like, are there absolutely no absolutes? <laughs> yeah, you just made an absolute statement. The famed atheist physicist Stephen Hawking said, philosophy is dead. Not knowing he just stated a philosophy. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And so, and so this postmodern worldview was really helped shape a lot of our modern culture. But, because it, but whenever it can't really withstand the scrutiny of tr- real questions, then it gives way over into a post-truth society because that logic doesn't hold up because it's really only the logic of Christianity that is able to bear the weight of all of these questions that we ask, okay? 
But because, but because what happens is, is because it can't face serious questions, then it's just going to be my thoughts and my feelings that will be elevated above truth. And then if I can get power, I can do away with all you bigot Christians. Am I helping anybody today? Am I scaring anybody today? Now, one last thing, and then we're going to jump into John 4. Because now I want you to see what's happening in the church at large. And again, much of this was, I, I, I want to just give credit to Ravi Zacharias, the apologist who's gone on to be with the Lord. I just really felt like it was something that we needed to tackle. But here's the next thing that I think is really that the church is dealing with. And it's this thing called pluralism. Now, pluralism I think the best way to define this is to illustrate it. Um, on one particular Mother's Day several years ago, my mom and, and dad showed up to service and we wanted to go to Wichita and, uh, and to celebrate Mother's Day. And uh, my mom said, Let's go, and I won't name the cafeteria, but she said, let's go to this cafeteria place because everyone can get what they want and everyone will be happy because of all of the choices and all this stuff. But here's the reality. Dad was not happy. Dad's a little bit of a germ phobe. And so he sat there with his arms folded and he's like, I'm having none of it. Dr. Pepper with no ice because you don't know where that's been. I mean, this particular place was notorious for kids to, like, put their face underneath the ice cream dispenser and pull the lever down, you know. And so food was everywhere, you know. But, we, here, but here's what I mean. In pluralism, and I'm telling you, our young people deal with this more than, than what we realize is what happens is, is they'll pull a truth from here and a truth from here. It's like they come to this buffet line of ideas. And they pull this idea and pull this idea and this idea. And they develop their own construct of truth. Not knowing it's latent and filled with hypocrisy. So in other words, in pluralism, we hope... We're, what we're hoping to do is formulate our own version of truth, hoping that it'll be the most loving, the most socially acceptable, not realizing the foothold of lies that we've embraced in the meantime. Let me give you some of the easiest examples. It's like this. We love each other and we're married in our heart and God loves us, so let's move in together. Or, or something as painful as... as uh, I love a relative who's embraced a homosexual lifestyle. God is love, so therefore God is okay with that lifestyle. Can you love someone and, and not agree with their choices? You see, God has been doing that for you your whole life. <laughs> He's been doing it for me my whole life. You see, we think that by bending the truth that we actually love people better. But actually, in reality, when we bend the truth in order to love, 
Your love is based on a lie. Am I helping you today? But to me, the scariest part of the buffet of ideas is not what happens to you, but what happens to your children. Because in the buffet of ideas, we actually are laying the groundwork for practical atheism in the next generation. Because in their own intuitiveness, they can intu intuitively see the hypocrisy. Well, you believe this, but you do this. You act like this, but you do this. I think pastor's mean today. But seldom do people factor into their philosophies of life how it impacts the next generation. It may make you comfortable, but you have no idea what's coming. So now let's go to John 4. Looking at the woman at the well, the five truths of love and truth. Verse 4. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to them, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's the first truth. Jesus draws near in love. The situation here is actually a very racially charged situation. A, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. To be a Samaritan meant that you were half Jew, half Gentile. That you were of mixed race. But I want you to know that this wasn't simply a race itch issue. It actually ran much deeper than that. In order to understand, I'm going to make a comparison here, but if you can imagine the racism prior and post-Civil War and then add to it the tension between an upstanding German citizen and a Nazi citizen who cost them the nation, okay? Imagine the feelings and thoughts and the animosity that those two groups would have to each other. Then the North and the South... Add that together and multiply it by hundreds of years. That's, that's what you would have with, between a Jew and a Gentile. Because, I mean, I'm sorry, the Jew and a Samaritan, because the Samaritans believe, the Jews believe, cost them the nation. They've been divided forever, okay? So to say this was a racism issue, it was a very loaded racist issue. And so now we have a woman who's also... The Samaritan woman who's mocked by her own because of her lifestyle choices. She comes in the heat of the day in order to avoid the mockery that she would experience from her own people. Now, then Jesus comes to her and he says, now give me a drink. And now this is shocking in two ways. First of all, that he talked to her. What are you doing talking to that woman? Second, he asked for a drink. 
because the, the, the reality of that day was that they had no dealings with each other. And that specifically meant we do not eat and drink together. We will not eat together at all, much like the segregation of restaurants back in the day. But they were not to eat together. Now, this is a shocking personal request. Jesus was moving in close. Her own people shamed her, but Jesus was not going to be restricted by the religious and social political norms of the day. His love moved in. He was drawing near. And he wasn't there to take a selfie with her and post it on Facebook. He wasn't trying to do hashtag Samaritans are cool. He wasn't trying to do hashtag Samaritan lives matter. He wasn't doing any of that. He was after her as an individual, as a person, as a child of God. He was drawing near in love. He was going to be there for her. See, as Christians, I think we need to really grow in the area of love. Love the ones that oppose the truth that we live. Love the ones that religion would shame. Love those who curse us. Love those who hate us. Love those that are just trapped in their own stuff. It is hard to withstand love. But that's what Jesus did. He was drawing near in love. Now verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as the sons, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And here's the second truth. Jesus reveals his truth. The Greek word right here for truth is this word aletheia. It's a, it's a, it's a two-part word, a meaning not, lethia meaning hidden or concealed. And so when you put it together, it's something that is not going to be uh, concealed, something that's not going to be hidden, something is being revealed, it's being opened up. In other words, it's like a great revealing. It's like the pulling back of the curtains. So he's, he's, Jesus is telling her, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift that I had, you would actually be asking me today, you would be asking me for a drink. Because I have the water that springs up into everlasting life. And so this hidden life, this shame-filled life that you're living right now, the, what, the way that you are hiding, if you were to drink of my well, you would find life. See, and it's hidden from her at this time. 
He's trying to get her to see a deep truth that is hidden, that her search, her search for life, meaning, and existence was staring right at her. Jesus comes to reveal truth to us. But His truth is not just rules and ideas. His truth is a person. His truth comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. I've heard, I've heard preachers and, and ministers say for years on end that whenever they describe the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's like liquid love. See, that whenever, whenever the Holy Spirit begins to move in your life, whenever Jesus draws near His truth, His love, it's a person. He comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's, it, see, what happens is, it, stand up, Garrett, I'm going to have to embarrass you. I just want you to know I love you. But see, this is what world does today. They give you the book and they, they say, now here's truth, learn all the facts in it. See you later. But this is what Jesus does. He says, hello. I want you to know I love you. I'm going to be with you forever. By the way, I have this book right here. You can learn it and soak it up and eat it up. It's going to have a word for your life. And now let's walk together the rest of our lives. Because truth is a person, not just ideas. You can be seated. And so much of human love is what's in it for me, but never with Christ. Whenever he draws near in love, he offers himself forever. His truth is his person. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here ever again. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you have now is not your husband. And that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Here's the third truth, is Jesus reveals our truth. Remember the word truth is aletheia, meaning not hidden, to be revealed, to have the curtains pulled back. And so there's the truth of Jesus, but then there's also the re our reality, our truth. See, she had things to hide, and, but what the reality of her life was is that those hidden things in her life was the cancer of her life. It was the things that were destroying her. It was her bad life experiences, wrong choices, failed morals, discrepancy of life. Pain caused her to hide. Matter of fact, the whole reason she walked to the well at that time of day is to hide from people. It was the same thing as I don't want to have to talk to anybody at the store. I'll go at an hour when no one's there. So Jesus offers her this living water, and she says, please give me this living water. And he says, go call your husband. 
And see, as Jesus approaches her in love, he offers the truth of himself, and she responds, hey, I want this, but then Jesus holds up a mirror and said, here's your truth. She had been, quote-unquote, living her truth, and this is where it brought her. Jesus lovingly wouldn't take her the next step until she faced the truth, until she faced her truth. She's like, he's like, ma'am, but this is your life. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You ever think, man, God, couldn't we have worked something out? <laughs> you ever think that? But it was his mercy that kicked them out. Because if they were to ever eat of the tree of life while still trapped in sin, they would have been bound to eternal death. In the same way, Jesus calls his people to truth and the truth of their life. In mercy, he makes us deal with the, our hidden truth. See, he's not just going to glaze over them to get them right. No, he brings them to the forefront because it's the cancer of your life. It was God's faithfulness to Adam and Eve that he sent him out of the garden. And Jesus didn't let her drink of that everlasting water until she dealt with her reality. Hard word? Verse 20. And so she responds, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So here's the fourth truth. Jesus invites us to truth. So after she gets exposed by Jesus and what was going on in her life, what she does is she deflects. Like so many of us do, when Jesus gets a little too close, we deflect, we change the subject. So she deflects and she refer, and she, she says, well, on this mountain is where we ought to go, but you boys say we ought to go to Jerusalem. And so what she's referring to is, is Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship. It was like the rival worship center to the one in Jerusalem. It was the, because of the first national split, you had the first church split, okay? Well, you boys say we ought to go over here, but we go over there. And so what happens is, is she, she tries to take the conversation back to where it started, to the race issue, to the political issue. Because her life just got exposed. 
I want you to know today that the race and the political and the where you worship issue is really trying to masquerade over the heart of what God is trying to get at. Man, I hope you're hearing that. Woo. Her truth, see, her life got it, just got exposed. Her truth was revealed. Jesus draws near in love. He reveals the truth. She deflects back to the race political issue. Jesus is getting too close. But Jesus says something bigger than race and politics is here. And he calls out to the true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. He's saying that God is looking for an honest true worshiper. He's looking for a worshiper that'd be honest about their lives, that's willing to come to the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. He's looking, and it has nothing to do with location anymore, has nothing to do with buildings anymore, has nothing to do with what side you fall on today. It has everything to do with the person of Jesus Christ, and he is looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. So she says, I know when the Messiah comes, he will tell us everything. And he says, I who speak to you and he. I'm he. See, it's the revealing of Christ, the person of truth, the giver of the spirit. And all of a sudden, she's awake. The Samaritan woman comes awake. And in that moment of saying, of Jesus declaring, I am he, it's that moment she takes a big gulp of that everlasting water. It's him. She goes running into the town. Come and see this guy who told me all that I ever did. Come and see this guy. She becomes this, the first evangelist. Come and see. Like that. She had an encounter with the person of truth. It wasn't about opinions or race or buildings. It was about coming to the person of truth. Number five. This is the last one. Jesus makes us free. John 8, 32 says this, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That word know in the Greek is the word gnosko, which means to have experiential knowledge. So you, when you have experiential knowledge of the truth, whenever the curtains are pulled back, something's no longer hidden, when you... When you have intimate personal knowledge of the revealed truth that Jesus is the Christ, that is when you will be free. When the curtains are pulled back. And you have that experiential knowledge and the person of the Holy Spirit revealing Christ to you. That's when you're free. You can be put in handcuffs in a jail cell, but you're still free. You can be judged, persecuted, lied about, talked about, hated on, 
put in chains, but you're free. It's the revealing of the person of Christ. I want to close with a story that Mr. Zacharias shared of one of his experiences. He was having to do a prayer breakfast at the, at the UN one year, and he only had 17 minutes to cover a, this particular topic, the search for absolutes in a relativistic culture. You got 17, buddy, make it count, you know. And he, so he comes to them and he tells them, he says, you have four areas in which to look for your absolutes. And you all would agree, will agree to this. He was telling this audience, the four absolutes, love, evil, justice, and forgiveness. Love, evil, justice, and forgiveness. He says, you all came here, you left your families behind, and you missed them. You love them. You, that's an, that, that you, you carry love, and you absolutely love them. And, and for all of the evil that happens in this world, you want justice for it, right? And he says, and when you mess up, you want forgiveness. You know, so he was able to bring some agreement to the room pretty quick, you know. And then he goes on to say, there is only one moment in human history when all four absolutes come together in perfect harmony. Only one. It was at the hill called Calvary. At the hill of, Cal- the hill of Calvary is absolute truth. Absolutely. Jesus in love goes to the cross to deal with the evil of the heart of man. He was both just and justifier, bringing God's justice granting forgiveness to all who would come to him. All four absolutes come together. Love, evil, justice, mercy. The ultimate quintessential demonstration of love is the brutal truth of the cross. And all absolutes come together right there. Amen? Let's stand. You feel like you learned something today, got engaged intellectually a little bit? You know, it's interesting times that we live in. But I really believe God is trying to cause us all to awaken to his truth. Awaken to the reality of who he is. And there's times when truth feels harsh and judgmental. It feels that way. But his truth is always for our good. When his correction comes, it's for our healing. Amen? Whenever, whenever, see, here's the thing. You, as a human, at some point in time, will have to deal with a hypocrisy you have. Meaning, man, I say this, but I do that. At some point in time, we've all been hypocrites. Amen? But it's the beauty of cross, it's the beauty of his love and forgiveness that allows us to bring those things to the light, get free from them, 
and to continue on the path towards him in truth. Amen? So let's all bow our heads. So I want you right now just to begin to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, what do you have for me today? What do I need to take home from this? I want you to just have a moment just to pause and to reflect. If some of the things that I've said have angered you or offended you, I would encourage you to take that to the Lord and ask why. And I think it's always a good practice. Just begin to ask the Lord, Lord, is there something in me where I'm believing a lie? Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, that he said that he would guide us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, we want to surrender our brilliance. We want to surrender our intellect. We want to surrender our opinions. Lord, even as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, Lord, we want to surrender every lofty thought that's raised up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in, in your word. Any place, Lord, where we have a strongholds of opinion. At any place that stands against the revelation of Jesus Christ, Lord, we want to surrender that, Lord, right now. Holy Spirit, guide us into all truth. Root us and ground us in your word, O God. Lord, in a world that's filled with such division and hate lord help us to grow in love into courageous love lord lord help us father to be ministers ambassadors preachers of truth god god fill our heart and our inner man god with the courage to speak boldly as you would have us to speak god But, Father, fill us, Lord, at the same time with the radical nature of your love. Lord, may we be agents in this earth, Lord, to reveal, Lord, the coming of the kingdom of God. Lord, may we be ambassadors of truth, ambassadors of Christ even. Father, may we awaken and return to our root system. Return to the root system of Jesus Christ and your word, God. Lord, 
Lord, cause us to see what you see and to do what you do. We may partner with you, God. Lord, let us be a healthy church, Lord, that's grounded in truth. Father, I ask today, God, I ask today, Lord, even as you poured out your spirit on the apostles to give sign and witness and testimony of the coming of your kingdom, God. God, I ask, Father, that you would pour out your spirit, Lord, upon us, Lord, in a radical way, Lord, and be filled with the spirit in a radical way to give sign, witness, and testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's risen from the dead, and that you are moving in the earth. Father, give us boldness, Lord. Give us boldness, O oh God, to speak your word in truth. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for who you are. Thank you, Father, for how you move. Inspire us, Father, today to lay down our lives for the purpose of your kingdom. In Jesus' name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Have a blessed day.